On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come to date a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Amazing. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you all at um, short notice. <laughs> um, as Libby said, my name is Becky. I'm a fourth year theology student at Edinburgh. Um, and yeah, love, love Edinburgh, love P's and G's, um, and love doing youth work. It's amazing. Um, so this morning, we're looking at another paradox. And another paradox, which is a little bit mind-bending sometimes. So the paradox is, what happens when it feels like God is silent, yet God is actually still speaking? What happens when it feels like God is silent, yet God is actually still speaking? And I've been doing a little bit of thinking about silence this week. And thinking like, about the incredible variety of ways in which we use silence. And I found this quote from this um, author called Norton Juster. And he, um, he talks about silence. So he said, have you ever heard the wonderful silence just before the dawn? Or the quiet and calm just as the storm ends? Or perhaps you know the silence when you haven't the answer to a question you've been asked. Or the hush of a country road at night. Or the expectant pause of a room full of people moment, um, when someone is just about to speak. Or, most beautiful of all, the moment after the door closes and you're alone in the whole house. Each one is different and all very beautiful if you listen carefully. And I love the way he picks out the different ways that we can use silence and interpret silence. And when you're with someone else, another person, quite often their facial expressions and their body language help you to interpret silence. So you know if you've just asked a question or you've had your child ask you a question and you stand there like, maybe tapping the foot. You know, perhaps it wasn't the right question to ask and everyone's like, oh, okay. Or there's silence used when comedians like tell the joke and then just go quiet. And it's like the most hilarious thing ever. But it's easier to understand silence when you can see and interpret the facial expressions and body language. I don't know if you've ever had it, but you've been on Messenger or WhatsApp or like email or phone and someone's gone silent. You know, they've seen the message, but they haven't yet responded. 
How would you interpret that silence? You can't see them. You don't know how they're reacting. But then, what about when it feels like God is silent? What then? We can't see God. How do we know what, what's going on? How do we feel? And I don't know about you and the wealth experience we have in this room, but I feel like I've had times when God's been silent. I remember when I'd just failed my driving test for the second time, I was annoyed, frustrated, I was upset. I went for a walk, but it wasn't just a walk, it was one of those walks where you like pound down. I was like, darn it, I've done, I failed again, and I don't want to fail. And, and I'd sat on a drivestone wall and just cried and ranted and been like, oh, God, what is going on? And I hadn't felt like God had said anything. But one thing I want us to remember and to think about before we get into the book of Esther and look at how um, God is speaking there, is that God gave us promises. And in Matthew um, chapter 28, verse 20, it says this, I am with you always, remaining with you perpetually, regardless of circumstance and on every occasion, even to the end of the age. Jesus promised us he's never gonna leave. No matter what's happening, no matter how silent God feels, Jesus said he'd never leave us. He's still there. He's with us. And the other promise is that God promised us that he would answer when we call. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you, and tell you, and even show you great and mighty things. Things which have been confined and hidden which you do not know and understand and cannot distinguish. God said, if you you call to me, if you cry out to me, I will answer you. So we get this paradox. When it feels like God's silent, God is actually still speaking. Now, in the book of Esther, it looks like God's quite quiet. I hadn't even realized before I read it for this talk, but... God isn't actually ever mentioned explicitly anywhere. Which to me was like, oh, but it's in the Bible. (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) Where is God? So in order to understand and see how God uses um, people in the book of Esther, we're going to do a bit of background historical context first. So we had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Judah was pretty tiny, like the Jews living there, they didn't take up a lot of land. And the Babylonian Empire, which was the big guys on the block at the point, we're like, oh, that's easy pickings. Came in, took over, and sent the Jews that were living in Judah into exile. This is hard. This is so hard. How do you be a Jew? How do you practice your religion? How do you trust and have faith in God when you've been taken from your land and put elsewhere? But we get the prophets. Right? We get Nehemiah, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, and they're helping to keep the Jews hopeful, they're telling some harsh truths sometimes, but they're helping to speak God's word to the Jews in exile. And then the time goes on and the Persians are now the big guys on the block. And they take over the Babylonian empire and inherit all these Jews that have been exiled. The Persian king is kind of chilling, it's like, oh well, you guys that have been exiled, if you wanna, if you wanna go back to where you were living, like, it's fine by me, you, you go be Jews in, in Judah, like, that's chill. And so 
we have this situation where some of the Jews decide, okay, yeah, let's go back to our homeland, let's go back to where we came from. And some Jews decide, you know what? We've been living here for so long, we're settled. I don't want to go back to a, a city that's in ruins and where we were taken from. And the book of Esther is written to the Jews that decided to stay where they were. They didn't go back home. And the commentators agree that the book of Esther is a book of encouragement. So I think it's fair to say that if Esther's a book of encouragement, then these Jews perhaps were really discouraged. And perhaps they were going, well, well, where is God? We're still living in the place we're exiled to, and how do we understand where God is in this? God was speaking through the prophets, but where is God now? So this is the people to the book, that the book of Esther was written to. They were discouraged. They were finding it hard. And so then we have the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther starts with this king who's like, oh, you know what? I need me a new wife. I'm like fed up with the old one. She didn't do exactly what I asked. So you know what? I need me a new wife. So he sends out, because he's the king, he sends people out into the whole region of Persia and goes, bring me the most beautiful women. Give them the best treatment in the lands. I want them to, to have all the best foods, you know, all the nutritional oils for their hairs. And then present them to me, and I'm going to tell you who the next queen is going to be. So the people go out, and um, Esther, who is living with her uncle Mordecai, is a beautiful, stunning woman. And she's one of these women that gets picked, taken to the palace, given the best treatments of the land, and presented to the king. And when the king sees Esther, he's like, oh yes, she's my woman, she looks good. <laughs> and so Esther becomes queen. She's a Jew, and as her uncle Mordecai is, and from a very humble background, but she's now queen. And then we have Haman. Now, he is like the king's right-hand man. He's doing pretty well for himself, you know? He's like second in command in the kingdom, like deserves respect and authority. He has all the authority. And so he thinks that when he walks past, people need to show that respect by like literally like bowing down to him. But Mordecai, who's a Jew, he has a god. He's not going to bow down to someone else. And this doesn't really please Haman very much. He's like, excuse me? What? <laughs> so Haman, in perhaps what we could see as being an overreaction, decides, well, if Mordecai's not going to bow to me, I'm just going to kill all the Jews. Kind of drastic. So we get to this point in the book of Esther where Esther's been made queen. Mordecai has just found out that all the Jews are going to be killed. And there's a bit of panic going on. What are they going to do? And we get this amazing bit of dialogue between Mordecai and Esther that I just want to read for us, and then we're going to pick apart. Because this is where we really see God starting to move and work in this book. Up until this point, he's not really been involved as much, but now we really start to see him coming in. I'm going to read from Esther chapter 4, verse 8. Mordecai gave Hathach a copy of the decrees issued, to, issued, in, um, issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. He asked Hathach to show it to Esther and explain to her the situation. He also asked Hathach to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathach re returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathach to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials, and even the people in the provinces 
know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathach gave Esther's message to Mordecai. And Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all of the Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So you get Mordecai, he's in a bit of a panic. Oh, what do I do, what do I do? Oh, wait, okay, Esther's queen, like, I need to tell Esther, I need to warn her, we've got to do something. He's like, Esther, please, 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 beg the king. Like, we just, we have to do something. Esther, you can do something. But Esther's response is, it's a little bit defeated. It's quite fearful, actually. It's like, yeah, but you, you know how it is. You know, like, if I go into the king when he's not requested to see me, like, I literally could die. Like, he could just say, oh, you're, you're going to, like, that's not okay. You're going to be dead. And she also says, but he's not asked me to come to him for 30 days. So what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do something? And then I really like what Mordecai comes back with. And this is really where God starts to come into this, this passage. And it, at first, it sounds like a kind of a harsh truth. Mordecai's like, look. Just because you're in the palace doesn't mean you're going to, you know, get out of being killed. You're a Jew, you're going to be killed. Bit harsh. Not really holding back, but when it's literally a matter of life and death, it's needed. And then Mordecai next says, look, if you don't do it, someone else will. Deliverance will come from some other place. In this sentence, Mordecai is implicitly going... I believe God has a plan. He's never mentioned God's name, but he's saying God is here. God is going to do something. I believe it. And not only that, but he goes on to give, I think it's an encouraging challenge. It's definitely a challenge, but it's a little bit of encouragement. Because he says to Esther, well, who knows? Perhaps it was for a time such as this that you were made queen. And in this, he's saying, look, I know God's got a plan. I know God's going to save us. And perhaps it was God who put you here. Perhaps it's God that's going to use you exactly where you are, doing exactly what you're doing, to save the Jews. Mordecai is trusting God. He's bringing God into the picture. And then God comes even more to the fore when Esther responds going, okay, deep breath, if I must die, I must die. But before we do anything, we need to fast. And she's like, I'm not just going to fast. I want you and all the Jews in your hometown of Susa to fast too. We're all in this together. Pray for me. When people fast, they pray for the encouragement of others. They pray for the blessing on others. 
What Mordecai and the Jews did was to pray for Esther in her situation. And Esther herself gave up food and was like, you know what, God, I just need to focus on you right now. I'm going to do something which is actively against the law and I could die, but I'm going to do it. And so they fast. On the third day, Esther puts on her queenly clothes. She dresses with the authority that she has as the queen and she goes and she stands directly in front of the entrance to the inner court of the king. That moment before the king raised his scepter must have felt like an absolute eternity. The hush and the silence. That must have been really hard. But the king raises his scepter and says, yeah, yeah, Esther, come on in, come on in. Breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) But it's still not over. Because the king has allowed Esther in, but Esther still has the whole fact that the Jews are going to get killed to deal with. So, you know, not, not, not not a hard day at the office, really, let's face it. But Esther, through the wisdom and through the courage that she's gained from from the fasting and the praying, chooses a time wisely to ask the king. Before she asks, she invites the king and Haman to a feast, which is an incredible honor. And she says, you know what, I, I know I have something to ask you, but just come to a feast and then come again tomorrow night and then I'll ask. And so then she does. And as we read on throughout the book of Esther, we see that the king, once Esther has like, asked, put her request forward, is like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do something. And the king puts out another edict which allows the Jews to fight for themselves so that they don't have to be killed. The book of Esther never once mentions God, yet God is so present. God works in and through Mordecai and Esther and the Jews that prayed for her. And what I love about this book is it's quite normal, right? I don't know about you, but in my daily life, it's not often that I get a bus coming by with words like, you shall go and read this book for your essay from the Lord written on the side of it. Or there's no like clouds in the sky telling me and fire raining from heaven burning words into the ground. It's, it's nothing like incredibly miraculous. It's just fairly normal. God's using people. And speaking to the Jews who were living in their country that they'd been exiled to, they needed to know that God didn't just speak through the prophets. He was speaking through the people just as much. God still cared. God was still there. Recently, I had a, an experience where I, someone spoke to me, and actually God spoke through them to me. So I was sat doing my work, um, just at, in my flat, and I reading for an essay, and it was kind of getting tough, and I didn't feel like the readings were really like, applicable to the question, and I was getting frustrated. And then a text pings up on my laptop. It's from one of my really good friends, Fleur. And she was just like, hey, like, you just came to mind, so I've just been praying for you, and I just wanted to encourage you. And in that moment, as I read that message and read the encouragement that she gave in, in how I was working and how she um, said that God would work through me, I was like, oh, wow, okay. That really hit me where it, where it was needed. God spoke through Fleur to me. When it feels like God is silent, God is still speaking. But God doesn't just use people. God also uses the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realise what is wrong in our lives. 
It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The Bible is God's word. When we open it, we read the truths that are in there that can speak directly to us. As I found when I was um, sat frustrated about my driving test and having failed again, I was sat on this drive wall crying and so annoyed. And I was, I was ranting at God going, God, what, what is this? I don't understand. I just want to pass. And I brought my Bible with me, and in kind of like a stroppy teenage, 17-year-old girl, but I was like, well, fine, if you're not speaking, I'll flick the Bible open and I'll just turn to a page, and it's probably going to be worthless, but I'll turn to a page anyway. And I did, and it opened up on a psalm, and the psalm was all about how God helped people overcome difficulties and how God was for people and how God would build you back up again. I was like, ah. Okay, God. <laughs> fine, fine. I rant retracted. <laughs> when I had felt like God wasn't saying anything, I then opened up my Bible and God spoke directly to me through the Bible. God uses people and the Bible, but he also uses the Holy Spirit. John 16, 12 to 15 says, There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. Jesus promised that when he left, the Spirit of God would come and dwell in us. And not only that, but the Spirit would speak to us would speak God's truth to us and point things out to us. I had a, a time in my first and second year at uni when I was really struggling, like my parents had moved, I felt like really sort of shaken up, I, I wasn't really sure who I was. And I wasn't really praying, I wasn't really reading my Bible, and I was coming to church, but wasn't really feeling like God was saying anything. But what I was doing was watching a lot of films. And often these films had a, a theme of um, someone dealing with grief or someone kind of figuring out who they were. And so often, when I was watching these films, the spirit inside me would stir and I would notice that the theme of you know, God building someone or someone being built up back up again would come stick out to me and, and God would be like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to build you back up. Or when someone was dealing with loss and their family and friends were around them, the spirit would kind of nudge me and I'd notice how they had community. And I kind of felt like I was going, yeah, yeah, but you've got your friends, you've got community, it's, I'm here. Although I wasn't actively hearing God like, speak to me, I was actively hearing God speak to me through films because the Spirit was tuning me into these themes. The Spirit of God within us can tune us into different things that we see in our everyday lives. God can speak to us through the Spirit, He can speak to us through other people. He can speak to us through the Bible. And I don't know where you're at today or what um, difficult times they might be going through, but when it does feel like God is silent, when it feels like he's not really there, the challenge for us all, and, and I've felt really challenged by this this week and will continue to wrestle with this challenge, is actually, do I dare to go, okay, God, where are you in this? I may not hear you, but where are you? 
And the thing to come back round to again and again and again is that even when it feels like God is silent, we need to remember the promises God gave us. He promised if we call, he would answer. Jesus promised he'd never leave us. So when it feels silent, do we dare to go, okay, God, help me see where you are. Help me see what you're saying. Wherever that leaves you, wherever that is, this is the challenge.